Podcast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 11, Police, the Jews, and Jack the Ripper. I'm Jonathan Mengus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas. Also joining us today is Howard Brown in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Robert McLaughlin in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, Allie Ryder is in Charlottesville, Virginia, and we're all here to welcome Martin Fido. Martin is the author of numerous books, such as The Jack the Ripper A to Z, which he co-authored with Paul Begg and Keith Skinner, The Crimes, Detection, and Death of Jack the Ripper, and The Chronicles of Crime. He has also done a multitude of audio presentations on infamous crimes, including Jack the Ripper, and is currently a professor of English at Boston University, and joins us from North Falmouth, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Welcome to the show, Martin Fido. Thank you, thank you, Jonathan. Um, first off, uh, I'll, I'll shoot you a, a general question that I uh, give all of our guests, and that is, uh, could you describe for us what led to your interest in true crime and the murders of Jack the Ripper in particular? Yes, true crime, morbid adolescence. I found books in the public library on people who were suffering even more guilt and anxiety than I was and got hooked. Then grow up, and as Richard Altick, the uh, very, very heavyweight American scholar, says, if you have learnt a lot about true crime, you don't like to throw it away, so you tend to keep it up. And that meant an interest in Jack the Ripper when Tom Cullen's book came out. Uh, Just about all my generation thought, wow, here's a book which says who Jack the Ripper was. We read that with great interest. And after that, I read all the books on the Ripper as they came out, thinking when Stephen Knight's came, do I really want to read any more? But finding that there was new information in his book, even though I could see it was rubbish. And then when I found myself writing True Crime, behold, the Ripper anniversary was coming up. It's easy to write books. It's very difficult to get publishers to accept them, but they love anniversaries. So I proposed a Jack the Ripper book for the anniversary. And, and that was The Crimes, Detection, and Death of Jack the Ripper. It was, though I actually wanted to call it what you've called this program, The Police, The Jews, and Jack the Ripper, because my focus came from work I'd done on the Murder Guide to London, when for the first time I read the police memoirs that people had drawn on for Jack the Ripper as well as other books. And I realized, and I still am astonished that nobody had ever said it before, that Sir Robert Anderson's poor Polish Jew from the heart of the district must be the same as McNaughton's Kosminski. And what I proposed to write was a book, having examined very carefully all the police involved and found from looking at their other work and what people said about them that the most reliable of them was Anderson. I proposed a book which was going to end up by saying, so if you go to the asylum records and check them out, you should find somebody called Kosminski who will be a more plausible suspect than any other suggested so far. And the publishers took one look at this book proposal and said, you're obviously right, go and find him. I had a year to do it in, and it proved a very complicated chase. Finding Kosminski did not mean finding the person I thought was Jack the Ripper. In fact, I found the person. Sorry, please you're go on. Absolutely, no, I was going to say, you're absolutely right. It's actually very, very complicated. And I think a lot of um, what people have difficulty with is understanding the whole Kosminski-Kamensky-Cohen um, 
connection. Um, yes. I've read it several times. <laughs> I read it several times yesterday, and I was just wondering. I think one of the main problems people has is how did the name, if if the name Cohen was entered as being yep. as being Nathan Kaminsky, how did the name Kaminsky go up the chain to McNaughton to have McNaughton have the name Kaminsky in his head to confuse it later on with Kuzminsky? And I hope I said all of those names correctly. <laughs> you did, absolutely. I tend to say very little about Nathan Kaminsky now because, as um, uh, Adam Wood said to me a long time ago, uh, he's, he's a bridge too many. He, I found him first. I found Nathan Kaminsky going into the asylum with um, syphilis to be treated and... Uh, coming out, as far as I remember now, that's just before the assault on Ada Wilson. Or it's immediately after the assault on Ada Wilson that he goes in. And I'd already seen her as a possible first Jack the Ripper attempt. And here was a man living bang in the heart of the district with a job which would make him leather apron. Now, the, one of the fascinating things I'd found out was that while the police said, leather apron's over, we've got leather apron, they knew it wasn't true. They were simply suppressing the... Uh, anti-Semitism that the suspicion of a Jew was stirring up. Uh, they knew quite well that Pizer was not Leather Apron. Uh, the S Sergeant Thick, the man who identified him as Leather Apron in court, himself said to the press before he got to court, I'm almost certain Pizer is Leather Apron. Pizer said he'd never heard anybody call him Leather Apron until Thick told him he was, and his neighbors and relatives all said he'd never been known as Leather Apron. The police needed a leather apron to shut that scare up. So here is a man who was a shoemaker, could have been had a leather apron, and lived bang in the heart of the district. When I told Richard Whittington Egan that, he was the uh, expert that we all respected in those days. Um, he said, wonderful, you know, exactly what he'd be looking for, somebody from the center of the district go further. And then, of course, the problems start because he disappears. Where Cohen comes from is quite simple. I'd traced down to 1890 all the asylum records in London, and there was no Kosminski anywhere. I was quite sure that two years after the event, anybody who went in was not the Ripper. So if you have um, McNaughton pinning his hopes on a man who died when the murders stopped, but saying there was a lot of evidence against Kosminski, you have got... Uh, Anderson saying he went into an asylum and everybody was perfectly safe. We're looking at somebody who went in in that period when there was no Kosminski. Now, I'd got every Jewish um, lunatic who was certified and incarcerated from London in that period in my notes. And I realized suddenly that the very first one of them, the one to go in immediately after the uh, Ripper uh, murders stopped, at the point which would cause them to stop, was David Cohen. And when I looked at him, he was the most violent man of any that I'd seen. Uh, died of exhaustion of mania because he had to be kept away from other patients because he attacked them. He tore his clothes up if he had a chance. Uh, he was brought in under restraint because uh, he threw himself on the floor and rolled around when he arrived at the asylum. Uh, dies within a year. So I thought, this, this clearly is the man. And then, given more space, when I've actually got that book in print, ready to go, but they say we've got more room for you to add an appendix, 
I say, okay, I'll find out everything I can about Cohen, and I get another book, which I hadn't seen before, from the Coney Hatch records. That goes down to 1892, and there is Kosminski. Ah! But going in far too late, and with a completely different sort of record, so clearly not the Ripper. So the question is, how did he get confused? Then I go back to, in my mind at that point to Kaminsky and think, well, maybe that name was confused there. But as soon as I've published, uh, that, that spurs Munro's, not Munro's, um, uh, the other Scotsman, uh, you know who I mean, the man who was in charge of the, the desk officer in charge uh, of the Swanson. Swanson. Swanson, thank you. Swanson's grandson makes renewed efforts to get the Swanson marginalia published. Now, they confirm what I've said. Swanson Marginalia say this man was taken to the asylum under restraint and died very shortly after going there. David Cohen is the only Jewish, a Jewish lunatic taken in under restraint who died shortly after going there. But then they say two things which relate to Kosminski and not to Cohen. They say that uh, he was uh, released to his brother's care in Whitechapel and that his name was Kosminski. Now, but no, sorry. Um, you, you need to come in. Yeah, excuse me, uh, Dr. Fido. If the Hove identification occurred after 1890 and David Cohen died prior to 1890, how do we reconcile that? We don't. I don't think it did take place after 1890. I think it took place in 1888. We have no evidence of when and how that identification took place. Uh, it's a pretty wild guess with no substance that uh, Stuart and Don have put forward about linking it to the later seaside home. We just don't know what is meant by the seaside home. We have evidence that they were using ad hoc seaside homes prior to the opening of the Hove Seaside Home in 1890, and they were referring to them as the Seaside Homes. Paul Begg used to query this until he found for himself the evidence that I'd pointed him to in the police gazettes showing this happened. Then he agreed, oh yes, it's obviously perfectly true. Uh, I don't think... We, that's very mysterious, that whole idea of the identification taking place in the Seaside Home. We don't know how or why that happened, um, but I don't think for one minute that the identification took place in uh, 1890. That's too long after the murders for anybody to pay any serious attention. So, um, by saying a bridge too many on the Nathan Kaminsky issue, yeah. are you now um, saying that you believe that David Cohen was not Nathan Kaminsky or that it's largely irrelevant and that the name confusion really had nothing to do with Kaminsky, Kuzminsky, they just happened to say it was Kuzminsky but thinking of David Cohen? I think that there is no, that it's purely speculative, the suggestion mm -hmm. that Kaminsky, Kosminsky were mixed as names. It's better to put Kaminsky aside. He only shows up coincidentally as somebody of the right age, right nationality, right situation and right occupation. But that's a coincidence which could apply to a lot of people. So leave him aside. The fact that he disappears is fascinating, interesting, but unimportant. Now let's come back to two people we know are there. David Cohen who does two of the things that, uh, that, uh, that Swanson says Kosminski did that we know Kosminski didn't do. So there's no question that Cohen and Kosminski were confused. As you've rightly said, if there was anything resting on an identification in 1890, Cohen would be completely out of the picture because he was dead by then. But he's not out of the picture. To take him out of the picture, you've got to explain away uh, Swanson saying that Kosminski died shortly after going into the asylum 
uh, sorry, McNaughton saying that, and sorry, Swanson uh, is also uh, letting this go through. Swanson is saying this, and he is saying it ten years after, uh, more than ten years, uh, eighteen years after Cohen had, uh, after Kosminski had gone into the asylum, and the man is still alive and had another ten years to live. So you're into wild speculation to say how did they lose sight of the fact that he was still alive if you say they were talking about Kosminski. They took their eyes off Jack the Ripper and said, oh, we've heard a report that he's dead. That doesn't matter. He could have been released. There's no question. They knew somebody had died. And I, my explanation for the confusion is the suggestion based on Swanson saying the city police followed Kosminski and his brother's home in Whitechapel, which wasn't their territory, that both forces had been treading on each other's territory to try and get the case. The Met had used the city's witness, uh, Mr. Lavenda, for their identification. They shouldn't have done that. He wasn't a witness to any murder that had occurred on the metropolitan territory. The city had been scouting out the residents of Kosminski, which they shouldn't have done. That was metropolitan territory. So they didn't tell each other what they were doing at the time. Sometime later, Somebody says from one force to the other, we followed the, the Jew from Whitechapel who went into the asylum. And the other one says, so did we. Now, the Met had never known what their man's name was. Cohen, I've been told by people called Cohen. They know what their grandparents were called and it was something different. Cohen was an easy name for the authorities to write down if you had a Jew whose name you weren't sure of or couldn't pronounce. They're not sure of his name because they call him Aaron Davis Cohen in the morning at the magistrate's court and David Cohen when they turn him over in the evening. They're not sure of what he's called. He's got no known relatives. He is a raving lunatic. How they know his age, his occupation, or anything about him, we really can't guess. David Cohen then... Now I've lost where I came in. <laughs> Senior moments, I'm nearly 70, and it shows up every so often. Um, but basically, you know, that those, two, that those two were confused. I think there can be no doubt at all, and I think it's because, yeah, two coppers got together and both thought they were talking about the same man. The Met had never known his name. The city knew the name of the man they'd followed. Absolutely certainly they'd followed his brother. He was called Kosminski. The Met accepts the name Kosminski about him, accepts data they've heard from the city. It's completely unimportant to them because they know the man is dead. The case is dead and it's over. Mm. But that stays in Swanson's mind as material he got from the city police. Every American policeman I've told this to has said, yes, they see it at once as highly plausible where you have overlapping jurisdictions. Uh, every ripper authority wants desperately to get rid of it and say it can't be true because it means you've got to spend all your time getting rid of that rather than playing with other interesting suspects. Um, just a quick question about the asylum records, uh, yep. uh, Martin. Uh, you were the first one to exhaustively uh, take a look at those asylum records. Um, I was one. wondering, yeah, I, I was wondering, yeah. like, uh, was there a difficulty in getting access to them? Yes. They were supposed to be closed. They are supposed to be closed for a hundred years. This is to stop, I think, people who try to break wills, for example, by saying, hey, my grandfather was mad when he wrote that, so that money should come to me. Um, I thought I would be unable to get at them at all. I was having to work entirely from... Uh, Dockets of pauper lunatics in care, which the local authorities had to send in. That's very interesting because Kosminski doesn't appear on those. So his family were contributing to his support, not leaving him to be a, a, a cost to the parish. Uh, 
And uh, looking at things like that in what are now the Greater London Archives, um, in those days they were the Corporation of London, I think, library, I forgot exactly. And uh, the librarians there realized I was serious, could see what I was doing, and one of them said to me, look, you are a serious scholar, you would get permission to see the asylum records. And they gave me the addresses to write to, and I wrote to them all, and I got permission to see them all, or to have, when I couldn't get out to the asylums, uh, places like Stone, uh, have the um, uh, archivists there go through them and uh, tell me of every Jewish patient who'd gone in in the period 1888 to, 19, uh, to 1890. Nobody has repeated that work. Um. Dr. Fido, may I ask you a non-Cohen, non-Jewish question Please over here? Do. Please do. Okay, well, it has, some, it, has some, it has a Jewish connection to it. Um, personally, I'm a believer in the provenance of the Goulston Street graffiti. But may I, right. ask you, may I ask you whether you feel that the way the Goulston Street graffiti is presented in films and documentaries, <laughs> uh, being this garish, huge message that's written on the wall, has anything, to, has anything to do with the belief of the majority of ripperologists discounting it as graffiti and nothing more? In other words, if the GSG had been presented once in the proper way that it was actually written on the Wentworth building in three-quarter inch high capital letters and over a very small area above the apron, might this message have been thought of in a way we would connect the apron with the message more positively? Uh, well, I could only say that I have no recollection whatever of the ways in which it was presented in any of the Ripper films I've seen. And uh, I was one who said very early, not only that I thought that the Goulston Street graffiti was not by the Ripper, but explained what I thought it meant. That I don't think it's it's next to the Wentworth Street Market. The Wentworth Street Market was uh, in those days essentially a shoe market. It sold second-hand shoes, and it sold shoes made in the sweatshops by cobblers who had no training. That's one of the things we discovered from the 1888 House of Lords Committee looking at immigrants. Uh, one of the things I discovered by looking at it, that the Jewish immigrants were all, if they had no trade, they were put into sweatshops, and they were made to be tailors or shoemakers, whether they had any experience or not. So initially, they would be making some really ghastly shoes uh, and suits, probably, you buy a pair of shoes from a Wentworth Street market and the Jewish salesman says these are very good shoes they will fit you very well when you get home and you get home and they don't fit at all they are terrible and you go back and you try and return them and he says my friend you've bought them I have not got any responsibility for these anymore and in a rage you write on his doorway the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing Cockney double negative means the Jews will not accept responsibility for anything and I think that it was about something like that. Somebody who had a quarrel with a Jew in the building and felt that he wasn't uh, owning up to what um, he uh, should have taken responsibility for. I don't think it had anything to do with the Ripper. But I doubt whether it's influenced by the way it's presented in movies because that had no influence on me. All that influenced me was looking at uh, Dew's suspicion that it had nothing to do with the Ripper. Dew saying, you know, there were lots and lots of these graffiti around, including the famous one that said, I've done uh, four and other 16 and I'll give up, something like that. Right. And the fact that the wording didn't seem to me anything sensible for the Ripper to be saying. Whereas one could make a sensible statement of it as soon as you took the double negative into account and thought about the place as relating to a Jewish shoe market. 
Well, well thank you. Um, at, uh, back to Cohen for a minute. Um, because um, I'm still a little bit confused. Um, <laughs> how, um, initially, you had, you had said in your book that it could have been a, a mishearing of Kamen or um, yeah. or possibly just a John Doe type of uh, a situation. But now, listening to you today, you seem um, pretty certain that, that it was actually a person named David Cohen. Um, no, that's the or, only name, that's the name we know him by. I don't know what his name really was. Oh, so so, could it, so so it still could have been a, a just a blanket John Doe type of an individual. Yeah, yeah excuse me. Cohen yeah. is the most popular Jewish name, correct, Doctor Fido? I don't know whether that's true, but it's it is. One it is in America. It is in right. the United States. It's certainly one which a lot of people called Cohen will tell you was la- put onto their family by. Um, immigration officials who couldn't spell a difficult name. I was told that by two separate people called Cohen. Well, and as you've pointed out, like he was arrested as David Cohen, then he shows up as Aaron Davis Cohen. As it's the other way around, but yes, he's arrested okay. as Aaron right. Davis Cohen. Right, but he's clearly the same person. Oh, yes. In that he's, case, yeah. Yeah, no question about it. He's the same person. Um, I have a question regarding David Cohen. Um, I've read, you know, your descriptions of him and his behavior in the asylum, and I was just wondering, most people... Um, have an idea of the Ripper as a very cool, calculating, he gets in, he gets out, he's not seen, he's calm, he's not violent, mania, um, dirty, uh, as David Cohen is presented. Um, And I was just wondering if you have any thoughts about the sort of dichotomy of, of, of how David Cohen is to how the Ripper is presumed to be by most people. Yes. Uh, I think that the Ripper is opportunistic and lucky. Uh, His victims know a quiet place where they will not be disturbed. It's their professional job to know that. Uh, Once he starts attacking them, he is obviously frenziedly violent. The form of the attacks shows this, and this increases. Now there one comes to um, Professor Ken Creaney of the University of Bologna, forensic psychologist, who, before he'd heard of David Cohen, looked at the Ripper case and said, this is a man with tremendous internal rage and it gets out and gets a release in the violence, after which he can run away quietly when he's got that instant release, but it'll turn on himself and he'll commit suicide. And then I showed him David Cohen's records and he said, oh yes, this would fit completely. If the man has this terrific rage, he gets released from it by these assaults. He makes a huge and tremendous assault, finally, on poor Mary Kelly. It doesn't ultimately satisfy him. Moreover, it's getting hard of him to hide victims. His mind blows, and he goes into raving mania. At that point, he's arrested immediately. You don't stay on the streets for 20 minutes if you've got raving mania. We never see it today because it's controlled uh, chemically at once. But remember that Jeffrey Dahmer when he knew he was blown by the police, went into raving mania. He was taken away, screaming, fighting, uh, really wild. Uh, After that and before that, whenever you saw him, he's totally cold and controlled and contained. Of course, afterwards, it's because he's on drugs. They're not going to have him insane in prison. Prior to that, it's because the murders calm him. But he needs that calming effect. You will find the same thing said by Nielsen. Uh, Nielsen says that he couldn't explain it, but that his uh, murders produced a sense of peacefulness and calm. 
Dr. Fido, do you, do you believe that um, Cohen, if he was the Ripper, uh, was a sexual serial killer, or did he was his acts were simply a manifestation of the internal frenzy? If there is oh a difference my. there. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is there a difference? You know that the view being taken now by John Douglas and uh, many of the people working in the FBI psychiatric area is that the serial killer even if he's focusing on sexual details, is more than anything else a control freak. Right. And right. so it's the inability to control another person. I've always thought that the sexual serial killer is probably infuriated by something he desires so much and can't have. Hmm. And so he may or may not be a rapist as well, uh, right. but he goes to tear it up. But that, that's guesswork, because none of us have these internal feelings. I don't know. Um, and just sort of continuing on a bit with that, like as an historian, uh, Martin, um, uh, this, this is probably a good question for you. See, I've always held the belief that the Whitechapel murders are very much a product of time and place. That is their, you know, Victorian England, more specifically London East End. Um, but a lot of people recently, like uh, FBI profilers like John Douglas, uh, Professor David Cantor, Patricia Cornwell and Trevor Marriott and others, are looking at the case with the 21st century uh, ideals, like with uh, criminal profiling, geographical profiling, forensics, you know, other modern techniques. Um, do you think this modern approach is useful and productive? And, uh, you know, can we reconcile it with the historical facts? Yes. Uh, you know? Yes, I think that uh, everybody, almost everybody serious who's worked on the murders has started by looking at the geography. This is why Nathan Kaminsky excited me so much. He's bang in the center of the five murders. I also think if you look at the geography of the murders, Old Montague Street is very, very important. Old Montague Street carries you from the easternmost to the westernmost of the murders. To make the offshoot ones, you either cross uh, Whitechapel Road to get down for, and then there's the question whether Elizabeth Stride actually was a river victim. Uh, for the other two up north, you simply go up Hanbury Street, and that's going to lead you out to Dorset Street. But Old Montague Street seems to me crucially important. Uh, it's the obvious way that he can make escape from the police in the, uh, in, 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 the, in the first murder, the Polly Nichols murder. It keeps him off the main roads when the police are out everywhere on the night of the double murders. Uh, and, of course, that leads then to Black Lion Yard, which leads you back to Nathan Kaminsky. But I certainly think that geography is very important. Cantor's original geography, however, rested on this faintly dotty notion of a triangular comfort zone. And unless you've got four uh, cases, almost anything will turn into a triangle. It didn't, it didn't seem to me to be saying anything desperately useful. Um, in general, though, and, and certainly, I mean, if you look at what... Um, Ivor, uh, the fat man of the Isle of Wight. Ivor Edwards. Yes. Ivor Edwards. Uh, if you look at his work, you know, he's looked very, very closely at the geography uh, and thought very, very hard about the geography. I think it is a sensible and necessary approach for a historian and has been, we've been aware of that ever since the famous uh, cholera case of the 1840s, the doctor who found that they all came from one pump. We do look for a, a center, and I think the people were doing that before it became called psychological profiling. Now, seeing that um, 
that David so little is known about David Cohen. Um, yep. I, I'd be interested to know what still leads you to discount victims like Martha Tabram um, as Ripper oh. victims, and, and uh, how you view the C five in light of of the, being so little known about the suspect. Okay, uh, Martha Tabram, I leave as Martha Tabram's a question mark area. She could be a victim. Uh, I I don't want to rule her out definitely at all. Um, I don't want to rule Elizabeth Stride in or out absolutely definitely. Now, would you go on and oh, are you talking about the canonical five when you said the C five? Yes. Uh, Well, only because in your book, um, yep, you you had you had said. uh, of course I did. That was true. Creatively, that, that Tabram was not a Ripper victim. And so, yes, that uh, was that's the position at the time. Uh, at the time when I wrote that book, every serious book that had recently come out accepted McNaughton's view, and that's why I called them the canonical five. Stuart Evans was quite right to say I was the first person to use that term. Uh, it's absolutely true to say that the McNaughton five is a far better term, because even when I used the canonical five, I was already saying, and yet I have serious questions about Elizabeth Stride. I really wonder whether she really was a Ripper victim. Um, and now I would say we should also be looking to thinking, possibly Martha Tabram should be let in. What's against her is hmm, different-seeming type of attack, but uh, the possibility that she should be let in is one I would now acknowledge immediately. There's been a lot more work done since I did that book. That's <laughs> a long time ago, and I do accept some work that other people have done. Okay, um, Howard, did you have something to? Okay, um, moving right along here and getting off the um, Jewish question here. Uh, in, in the next edition of the A to Z, Dr. Fido, what are some of the significant additions that come to mind that you see being entered this time around that weren't around when the uh, A to Z first came out? Well, let's say immediately, Howard, your work on Donston. I think it's fantastic. We have, you know, a completely revised, hugely updated um, entry on Donston, and a great deal of that comes from your work. Uh, That's one thing, which is tremendous. Ah, now then, it's not sitting on my computer. You want to talk to Mr. Begg about this, because I changed computers in the middle of this. I'd have to go back to an old computer to pull up all the material that we had there. Certainly, uh, Keith found... um, a very interesting document which has been in the public domain before but not looked at seriously. Uh, it's something which had been in the Scotland Yard archives and it is the notes that somebody working on the case in the police had made on some suspects and some witnesses. I've forgotten what we call that document now but that's something which is of, of great interest that comes in. Uh, I rather like our discovery of a makeup man who believed that he had sold disguise to Jack the Ripper. Uh, yeah. And I think that should be of great amusement to the... Um, the, the uh, that uh, article uh, mentions to who we would believe would be Tumblety. 
There's that possibility. There's also Walter Sickert, who's got an amateur act or an acting uh, moment in his background, <laughs> and was supposed is supposed by those who believe in him to have used makeup. That's, right, and that's the, wi- the wig makeup um, uh, maker uh, actually said that one of his clients was chased to New York City by Scotland Yard. Oh, right. Yeah. But so that those, those things, I think, uh, are there, which are fun. Um, certainly the thing I remember having most fun with was Donston. Really finding out a lot more about Donston. That was very interesting. My, Can you tell us what co- you had to... Oh, I was Sorry? just going to pop in just to say for the record, Mike Covell, who is uh, a Donston expert, is a regular co-host on our show, but he was unable to be with us today. Forgot to mention right. that at the beginning of the broadcast. He's done a lot of research in that area. Um, go ahead, Allie. I was just going to ask, um, you know, with any, there's been several dozen, I'm sure, new inclusions since the dozen years the last yeah. edition came out. What did you have to exclude in order to make room for all of the new um, information, authors, uh, material? Tragically, all the living ripperologists. <laughs> you have to be dead to get in. <laughs> Death has become one of the ways you get in. We're very, very saddened by that, especially since I'd written to a number of people like Howard who very kindly given me details and data to put in. And then we just looked at the length and the amount of work that people had done, and the work had got to go in first. And so we declared the rule, you have to die to get in. <laughs> are you um, are you still um, limited to a page count as you were? Um, yes, uh, we're oh yes, we're tied by the publishers. You, yeah. And uh, it, it, with all the information on the Ripper case, especially in the last twenty years, uh, um, and and now the update with you and uh, Messrs. Beg and and Skinner, uh, how do you decide, like, just even what to put in and what to leave out? Like, what is that process between you three? Oh goodness, well. Keith is always doing ongoing work, and so he produces material uh, from quite original sources. Keith, as you probably know, is an amazing researcher, just going and finding things. Now, Paul was unable to do really as much as he'd hoped in this. Uh, he He had surgery in the middle of while we were working on it. Otherwise, the hope would have been that Paul would have dealt with all the new material that had come out in the journals as editor of Ripperologist for so long. He was well in touch with that and keeping up with what the other journals were doing. And I was going to do a really massive trawl through the internet. In the end, I had to take on the journals and pick up what we could from the internet as well. We had to make sure that things that Stephen... I mean, Stephen's website is fantastic. That, that's another thing which we have to say, you know, that, um, wow, uh, 15 years ago, probably the A to Z was the best research tool you could have on the Ripper. Paul and Keith will kill me for saying that I think now that the Sprite <laughs> website is the vital <laughs> Well, I'll just say thank you. On the, uh, on the Ripper. But you can't have it open on the desk beside you. <laughs> That's where we still are useful as the A to Z. But, of course, going through and making sure, for example, that we knew all about all the suspects who appear on the Sprider website. There's a huge list of them. So we had to go back and check all those out and get back to the newspapers where they are uh, described. I think we cut some of them, decided that some of them were 
so remote that, that in the end, the number of drunks who turn up uh, and got hauled off to court, and it was proved, of course, that they couldn't possibly be Jack the Ripper. They'd never crossed the Atlantic or Canada or something ridiculous like that. These people we had to drop, the ones who were total and utter non-starters as Jack the Ripper. I think they were. That so, I, I, so I gather that there, there will be less tangential inf- information in this one. And, and uh, you know, things that are on the periphery of the case. I imagine that the most of the, the rewrite will focus on just the case itself, right? That if we well, leave, the ape has yeah, been uh, cut it, out. Oh. <laughs> yes, but because of the number of suspects who've been turned up who simply possibly could be, uh, and because people who've gone and looked them up need to have their work recognized, um, there are still people in who I would call hopelessly peripheral. Now, Paul and Keith accused me of being much too selective. I had one year to write my book on Jack the Ripper. I had to go for what I thought counted. I couldn't spend time on the backgrounds of the victims. Uh, I had a clear starting point. These two, and I still cannot believe that, you know, nobody else had said it, but it, uh, it must be that these two senior policemen, one of whom, and not the other, uh, only Anderson is the one who looks really reliable. McNaughton, I could find masses and masses of error and confusion in what he wrote. I couldn't disprove anything that Anderson said, and I couldn't find anybody except politicians calling him a liar. The politicians are calling him a liar over political matters, not crime matters. And um, so... I've got this starting point that I'm looking for this Polish Jew. I've got two other clues. The place where it took place, uh, I want somebody who's in the center of the place, and the time that the murders stopped. There has to be a reason for them stopping. He's got to have moved, and they'll show up happening somewhere else. We now know, we didn't know in those days, that uh, if he's got sufficient sanity and he really realizes that the police are right on his tail, and he could be caught if he does one more, he'll stop for that reason. Uh, we've now got cases like the... Um, uh, uh, yeah, exactly, uh, who, ha- who stopped for that reason. So we know that that is a possibility. But we didn't know that when I was writing, so I didn't include that possibility. Hmm. I have an off-the-wall question for you, Dr. Fido. What if in 20 years there were all the existing suspects were eliminated with verifiable proof. Yep. How, how would you react to that? With very little surprise. Uh, I constantly say I'm not there to do it, and it's a very embarrassing and difficult thing to do. But the records of the uh, poor Jewish shelter that uh, could have been David Cohen's address still exist. They're in uh, Yiddish or Hebrew, Uh, Yiddish, I imagine, so I wouldn't be able to read them. And it's a very embarrassing area to get into because there's no question that um, the possibility of the Rippers being Jewish has been exploited wickedly by anti-Semites. I turn up on some fascist um, websites cited with great approval as a man who is apparently not an anti-Semite who has seen the possible wickedness of the Jews. You know, I tear my hair at this idea. It's absolute nonsense. Um, Jews are like anybody else, and anybody could have been Jack the Ripper. But those records are there. Now, we now know that that shelter accommodated people for two weeks after they'd landed. We should find out a lot about 
the Kosminskis, if they went through there, about David Cohen, if he went through, and if David Cohen had landed two weeks before he was arrested, then there's no question he wasn't Jack the Ripper, and I let him go immediately. But I'm not in a position to go and do that work, and I think somebody Jewish ought to do it, and will probably want to do it covering for something else, because the Jewish authorities are not happy about the whole Jack the Ripper question. I have to say firmly that I think that it will make things very, very much worse to cover up and pretend that there is no visible Jewish connection. Uh, that will lead to accusations of dishonesty. But I don't think that it says anything whatsoever about the nature of Jews that the most plausible suspect, as I see it, was himself Jewish. Right. Uh, the, the most recent suspect that it's come to, um, come to light is this Joseph Silver. Mm -hmm. are, you, are you aware of him? Yes, I am, and he, we, we got him in, of course. And I'm faintly shocked that a writer who is such a good historian should have produced a book resting on such preposterous coincidence that not being sure where the man was at this time, he might have been in London, he was a pimp, he did misuse his stable. Well, for God's sake, that is... <laughs> not a case, and any serious historian should know it. Um, I would like to return... Uh, go ahead, Ali. I would like to return really briefly to a question on the A to Z, because, Martin, as you know, I must ask this question. You and I once had what I consider a very cordial debate on an entry in the A to Z um, that I disagreed with, and it was on an author who is now deceased, and oh, so yeah. I can presume that there will be an inclusion in the current A to Z um, on him. And at the end of our debate, we agreed to disagree, um, but you did say that in the, the most recent, uh, the next edition of A to Z, that you as a team might decide to revisit that because there had been some from not just myself, of course, because I've never had an original idea in my life, but, you know, from yeah. a lot of people saying that perhaps this entry needed to be to be looked at. Um, and I was just curious, have you revisited, and the entry, of course, that I'm speaking of is uh, Melvin, Melvin Harris. Harris. Well, we certainly yes. have revisited it, and I honestly can't remember what we've said. <laughs> well, I'll let you know as soon as, uh, which I leads me to the other question, when's it coming out so I can take a look? We don't know because the, the publisher, the bloody publisher has gone bankrupt. Uh, we have not received the second two, uh, uh, amounts of our advance that we should receive. People have taken over the publisher's assets, made such a rotten offer that our agent has said withdraw it from them and he's going to try and sell it somewhere else. You're going to take it to the Frankfurt Book Fair, correct, sir? I have no idea what he'll do. I am not. <laughs> I have no business sense, and I don't know how he will try and deal with that. But uh, that's in his hands. But at the moment, we just do not know when it'll come out or under whose auspices. Mm, that's a shame. On Melvin, um, I'm not sure what you wanted revised. I mean, the, the fact. Let's let's take it as fact that Melvin threw out cheap attacks on reputable writers, for which he had no valid evidence whatever, and that's what we warn people about. Let's take, for instance, something I'm using in my teaching. I use all the, um, in one of my courses on writing about science for scientists, I use the lab reports on the Maybrick Diary, Inc. And I ask my students to look at those and putting them together, write a report for a non-scientist who wants to know what scientists can tell them about the inks. Now, if you go through those reports, they appear to contradict each other, 
But actually, there's only one really serious contradiction. And that is that the e-store report says that he finds sodium in the ink, and the Leeds University report says there is no sodium. Now, that's important. And, of course, oddly enough, those are both reports that the pro-diarists uh, favor, because both of them say that this could be old. Now, the sodium was important because that's, uh, by that time they're looking for uh, chloracetamide, I think it is, which would have sodium in it. Melvin produces this and says, look, they knew all the time there was sodium in it and they've accepted this report that says there wasn't. This is typical of the dishonesty of Mrs. Harrison and uh, Feldman and so on. That's nonsense. If you go back to the Eastman report, uh, to the Eastor report, there is one small graph which says N.A. and shows it present. Now, until looking at that, actually for the purpose of putting it in front of my students to teach, I had completely forgotten that the chemical form uh, description of sodium is N.A. I'm quite sure that Shirley Harrison and Robert Smith and Paul Feldman paid no attention. Having students looking at these, it's very, very difficult for them to see everything which is in a mass of material, even the trained scientists. Very few of them get this right. It's the crude accusation of dishonesty thrown quite unrealistically, and I would actually say quite dishonestly, against very honest people. Mrs. Harrison has said consistently, she doesn't say that uh, what's-his-name was the Ripper. She thinks there is a high probability, and if she's proved wrong, she'll say, jolly good, the forger was very clever. Now, we don't get any of that sort of gracious willingness to accept that his ideas were wrong ever from Melvin instead we got abuse of other people and that's what our article was drawing to attention do not believe Melvin if he says he has shown that another scholar is uh, faking it or wrong Melvin has not shown the things that he thought he's shown setting that aside yes one of the very intelligent people who's approached the Ripper work written some very interesting material on the Ripper I think at the time when um, the A to Z was written and I had asked you, I think what the, the contentious part was that was under debate at the time, and again, understanding that this was, oh, many, many years ago, was that yeah. um, when it was asked what was the um, inciting um, information that had caused that entry to be included under Melvin Harris, the response back was um, a series of private correspondence that he had written to, I believe, Bruce Paley, but I will be perfectly honest, I could be incorrect on that name, and that I think the contention was was that, you know, if you write something on a message board or if you write something in a private letter, is that sufficiently warranted to caution against his published Good heavens, work? heavens no. It's his published work I'm cautioning against. Okay. I, I think that was just not made clear when that, we were discussing it. No, no, that I, I should be absolutely clear that it, when Melvin uh, writes patronizing things like I must treat other people's uh, work with the uh, scrutiny or something I bring to my own work, this is, this is sheer nonsense. He doesn't. He's not consistent. He is unlike other writers. He doesn't concede when he has made wrong uh, and exaggerated statements, and he launches absolutely ridiculously unreasonable attacks on other people. Well, Melvin, I mean, excuse me, I just called you Melvin. Say, Martin, <laughs> I think you're only inaccurate in one statement in that he's unlike other Ripper authors because I think you are one of the very few who um, doesn't do that. I mean, in general. <laughs> Ripperology uh, is very 
contentious field, and I think you stand pretty much individually as to not getting into the slanging matches that that sort of perpetuate this field. I would actually say that Melvin's slanging is different in kind from other people's. I don't find other people implying dishonesty. Let's I mean, Howard, you know, is, is, is having a good old ding-dong with Ivor Edwards. Uh, and I found both of them very, very pleasant to communicate with. Um, and I've enjoyed their work, both of their work. I'm not going to say which side I come down on in this, as you know, there. Neither of them do I find going out and... Uh, Ivor can lose his rag, of course, we all know that. Um, but that, 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 that's a matter of temperament. Uh, and he can back down from it and realize when he's gone too far. Uh, I don't find either of them behaving with the sort of supercilious, uh, and I am telling you, and this is right, approach that, that Melvin uses. I have a lot of disagreements with uh, Stuart Evans at times. Um, and my brother looked at the introduction to Stuart's first book and said, who is this man who claims to respect you and is this trying to uh, write off your work as unimportant wherever he can? But Stuart doesn't approach it with the tone of um, ineffable superiority and distortion of what's being written that one was getting from Melvin Harris. And people needed the warning. It wouldn't have mattered if he was obviously writing rubbish. But a lot of what he wrote was very good. Therefore, the warning was very important in his case. Um, Just changing tax here uh, to get off sort of the... Ripperologists and the arguments aside, yep. Um, yeah, for the for the most part, uh, um, we've seen a lot of public feuds, but you, you know, I've always found that uh, you know, privately, uh, most people that I've contacted have been you know very helpful and very agreeable, and and it seems like in in, in most circles, uh, ripperologists get along, although that's not the side often portrayed. I think this is quite true. Uh, there, there can be difficulties. Dan Farson. Dan Farson's drinking day began at about 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the early part of the morning, he was charming, he was lively, he was good value. As the day went on, he got more and more and more bad-tempered and impossible. Uh, at midnight, on one occasion in Italy, we were at a conference. Paul Begg and I had gone to Venice, had a day out in Venice, and we get back close to midnight. Dan is at the bar, absolutely drunk. <laughs> hey, you two! Are you two lovers? No, no, Dan. <laughs> uh, come over here and have a drink. Dan, we're exhausted. We're going to bed. I'll be like that, you bastards! <laughs> <laughs> described him as malignant as Henry VIII. So we knew they must have interviewed him later today. Uh, but you get him in the daytime. He's charming. Of all the people I wrote to before, um, uh, when, when I was writing my book, and I got one of the nicest letters back from Dan. I asked him why he said the name Kosminski or Kaminsky, something like that. And he wrote back very charmingly, saying he couldn't uh, remember and his file had been stolen. By the way, that's another thing in the A to Z. We do face the fact, which tends to have been avoided, that Dan reckoned that Tom Cullen had received the purloined file of his material. Right, there was that rumor, yeah. Oh, it's more than a rumor. Okay. And we can demonstrate from Tom's book, and we do demonstrate from Tom's book, exactly what Dan is referring to. That is an interview that uh, was never broadcast 
and so shows that Tom had had access to the material. Now, there is an example of the Melvin Harris problem. Melvin Harris had printed that he thinks that the file that Farson referred to never existed and was something he made up in order to be able to ascribe material that didn't actually exist to it. That's slanderous. Other Ripper writers don't write things like that about people. That's the objection to Melvin Harris. Dan may be wrong in a lot of his ideas, but there is no question that he had a file. He had all those interviews that he claimed he had that were on it. The file did get purloined, and he was unable then to ref uh, to source some of his references. Yeah, and then and, and Dan Farson was a lot different than, let's say, Donald McCormick and, and his claims, which can't be referenced. <laughs> yes, McCorm McCormick deserves just about everything that Melvin threw at him. Uh, if you look at all McCormick's other work, all over the there are people objecting. He's like the man who wrote The Bell Tower. You know, that stupid book suggests... That. John Graysmith, yeah. 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 Oh, Robert you look Graysmith. at the stuff that they Robert, write about Robert him Graysmith. on the, um, the, the, uh, the, the, the Zodiac Killers. You know, the, the, the internet is full, the internet is full of stuff saying what a uh, completely unreliable source for anything he is. Uh, and I'm afraid McCormick came much into that bracket. If he didn't know it, he'd make it up. Um, I right. want to ask you a few questions while we still have you here. Um, uh, uh, back to the case. Um, mm -hmm. What is your opinion of the little child letter and Tumble T as a suspect? And then, I'll, and then after that, I do want to know your opinion about Druid as a suspect. Right. First of all, the little child letter, now taking it in the historical time when it came out, that huge attention was focused on Maybrick, against whom there was no serious evidence whatever, just an obvious forgery, and limited attention paid to the Little Child Letter, historically a disgrace. Uh, the Little Child Letter is very important, as certainly showing the amount of disagreement and confusion that there was in Scotland Yard. The biggest problem is that we know so little about Little Child. We don't know that he had any connection with the case at all, or knew anything about it, except chit-chat that was going around the yard. Um, to say that he must have been connected with it, which it tends to happen in those who are pushing the, the case, no, as soon as you say he must have, you mean this, this writer is saying, I don't know, but I urgently need him to have. Um, the little child letter, Tumblety as a suspect, I think is a very bad one, and there's recent work, isn't there, in Ripper Notes, looking again at the dating of his uh, arrests and suggesting the enormous improbability of his being out on bail at the time of uh, Mary Jane Kelly's murder. Uh, little child's reasons for suspecting Tumblety are made very suspect by his erroneous belief that homosexuals are sadists. And he thinks this is a matter of course, he says so. He thinks he really knows that Oscar Wilde was like that. And then he refers to the uh, girl in the red case, uh, the Harry, forgotten his name now. Thoth. Thoth. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and this is nonsense. You know, his, his, uh, his grasp of criminal psychology is uh, disastrously all over the place. So... Little Child in himself is not a... You can't dismiss him in the way you can dismiss McNaughton and say, well, look, if you find 
a, a fact in McNaughton contradicted by somebody else, McNaughton's probably wrong because we've got umpteen facts that McNaughton gets wrong all over the place, including his description of his own suspect Druid gets his age and his occupation wrong. Um, and that occurs in other cases that Norton, McNaughton writes about. We can't say this of Little Child. We haven't got a lot of evidence of, of Little Child writing nonsense uh, about cases. But we have got him writing psychological nonsense about homosexuals, relating this to what he's saying about tumble tea. And we just don't know how much connection he had with the Ripper case at all. Yeah, uh, Dr. Fido, uh, on, on the uh, little child letter and little child himself, don't you, do you think it's quite coincidental that 25 years after the, the Whitechapel murders that he would have the recall to remember that Tumblety uh, or this Dr. T had been arrested in Marlbone? Or he had been no, in court that, in Marlbone? Why, why would that be remarkable? Well, for 25 years, if he didn't have much, um, if he didn't have a hand in the case, he remembered that, you know, within the letter that he wrote. Well, isn't it assumed that um, Little Child may have investigated um, Tumble T under his auspices of being head of the special branch, and, and that, that, you know, he does refer to a dossier being um, kept on Tumble T, so maybe there was some kind of cross-currents there, but... Yeah, I, I don't see any. Uh, I don't see any real problem in his remembering the arrest of Tumblety and remembering that Tumblety was a suspect. I mean, I, I accept that Tumblety was a suspect, and I accept he's the one that uh, Little Child at the time thought most interesting. What I don't know is how much Little Child knew about the other suspects. He'd never heard of Druitt. And here is the man who became head of Scotland, uh, head of the CID, who kept the Ripper photographs in his office himself, who was fascinated by the case and admitted it, who believed he'd got further ocu- uh, information that had come to him, who clearly had wrong suspects in mind. There's no doubt about it that uh, Ostrog was an invalid suspect, but drew it to his mind is the most likely suspect, and Tumblety says he's never heard of him. So how close was he to the case? How close was he to the people at the top of the case? Good point. Um, so so your opinion on Druid as a suspect... Um can't be ruled out. Historically, can't be ruled out. A source who may be, you know, wrong on a lot of detail, nonetheless is so much closer to the full data than we are. A source as close to the data at that time as that, says Druitt is his top suspect. I think Druitt is impo- improbable, that, but that is an I think level. He can't be ruled out. There's no way. I can say Ostrog couldn't be. He was in prison. Okay? Uh, but, uh, and I can say, you know, Prince Albert Victor couldn't be. He just wasn't in the vicinity of London. But I cannot rule Druitt out as a suspect. He remains a serious one. Tumblety remains a remotely possible one because he's probably under arrest at the time of the last murder. But um, Druitt is one who really can't be ruled out. And uh, it, so he, he's, he's there. He's, he's in, the, in, the, in the picture. Now, uh, Mar- uh, Martin, when looking at suspects and information, uh, for you, how important is the, is the source? If, if we don't have a, if we don't have corroboration, still crucial. A uh, historian must go to the source. It's far more important than a lot of guesswork from uh, where we sit now. We need this. That was the first thing I was looking for. The a source at the time who could have known 
and whose outside record was one of reliability. And that's where Anderson comes hands down on top of everyone else. Granted that on Little Child, we don't know. We have no reason to know of unreliability on, in Little Child. And granted that where I'm saying Little Child is ineffective in his psychology, this is as remotely relevant as Anderson's being uh, underhand in the inevitable way of a spy master in his dealings with the Irish um, questions. But the... Um, the source is 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 critical uh, as a historian. We're looking. I'm coming at this as a historian. Uh, I'm not coming at it uh, in the uh, may I say idiotic manner of uh, what's her name, the detective story writer, jumping up and down and saying forensics, forensics. I've used Patricia forensics. Cornwell. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> to do that uh, over a historical case where you have not got any uh, scientific evidence to work on is ridiculous. You've got to approach history as a historian, and the first question for a historian is the source. And uh, speaking of Anderson, uh, y you know, his, his theological writings and his theological views, how does that affect the way we look at him, or judge him, or, or should view him? Well, I think it should affect uh, us, because a born-again Christian of Anderson's time was not usually a Jimmy Swaggart. The point with Anderson, he's a man of rigid, narrow-minded, and bigoted integrity. So, he looks very closely at what he believes about telling the truth. He says that you don't have the duty to tell the whole truth to a madman or a criminal who's going to abuse it. He doesn't say you can lie to him, though. He says you can tell half-truths to him. And he gives his own account, then, of having uh, interviewed a murderer and told him, we have taken photographs of the victim's eyes. He doesn't tell him that they've shown nothing up. He knows that the murderer will think that will show, mean that his image has been trapped in them, because people believe that about eyes. Uh, and he d intends to mislead him with that, but he doesn't tell him that the image was there, or that it's proved it. He just says, you know we've taken photographs of her eyes. And he indicates that he would not think he should do that to you or me. That's something which you can reserve only for people who've ruled themselves out of deserving full truth. So, he can be silent about things. He does not turn up at the um, uh, Parnell Commission and say, Oh yeah, I wrote one of those. <laughs> he stays as quiet as he can uh, until uh, after it's all over. And then he admits 20 years later that he did write uh, one of those. He's not a man who would have lied. Remember, when I came into the business, people, all the books are, except Richard Whittington Egan's, said of Anderson that he was, are you there? Have I lost you? No, oh, yeah, I'm okay, there. Sorry. There was a sudden change in the white sound in the background. I thought I'd lost everyone. Um, he, he, he um, everybody else said, oh, Anderson was obviously lying. He's obviously, it's, it's so easy just to say we nearly solved it. He's just making it up. And I was quite prepared to accept that until I looked into in, uh, him and investigated his character. And then, no, he's not the sort of man who would do that at all. There's no question about it. He, he would never have done it. He may have been wrong. He was very pig-headed. And he could hold erroneous opinions very easily. But uh, he certainly believed what he was saying. Unlike, let's say, William Lequeux, 
somebody who Melvin Harris exposes very, very well indeed. Melvin Le, uh, William LeCue is a journalist who says, if I hadn't got a good story, I'd make one up. Well, he comes up with a beauty about Tom. Uh, yeah, it was a whopper. <laughs> yeah. All right, Allie, you had a question that you were going to post to Melvin. I mean, uh, uh, something uh, Martin. I well, Ascot is able to pronounce my R's if you keep calling me Melvin. Sorry. <laughs> Martin, go ahead. You Allie. can edit those out. Yes. Edit those out. Yes, um, I will. I was prompted by something you said about uh, the historical accuracy, uh, the historical sources, and um, you have to judge it um, by what it is. And I know that uh, the Swanson marginalia is uh, not important, not necessarily key to your case, but it's definitely a part of it. And I was wondering if you were aware of and what you thought of. There's been some recent speculation, some not so recent speculation, that the tag of Kaminsky was the suspect on the end of the Swanson marginalia is suspect. And I was wondering if you would like to address that and what your thoughts on that are. It is unbelievable rubbish. It is absolutely astounding that anybody with any scholarly competence has ever ventured to put that forward. The provenance of the uh, Swanson marginalia is absolutely perfect. Um, Let's say, first of all, my case originally didn't depend on that. My case was made, and then the Swanson marginalia turned up in response to it. And then I looked at them and said, my God, this confirms what I'd said without having this piece of evidence behind me, that these two men were confused. Now, let's get this very, very clear. Swanson's book passes to the hands of his daughter, a spinster lady whom, as far as we know, never opened it. Certainly never attempted to do anything with it. She dies, and her books pass to her nephews, Jim Swanson, who many of us met, and his brother. And they go through it, and they find this. And they say, good God, the old boy has said who Jack the Ripper was. And they're absolutely astonished. Now, I've seen those. And I've seen those, and let's compare them immediately with the obvious forgery that I've seen. The, um, uh... The Maybrick Diary. Diary, yeah. The, the Swanson marginalia are transparently in Swanson's hand. It's a very, very recognizable hand among the police officers of the time. It's not one of those unidentifiable Victorian copper plates. Uh, it's not a, 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 an awful scrawl. It's a very, very legible round hand. They're all in his hand. They all... They all look of the right age and the right degree of wear on the page where they exist. And then you look at the provenance. Okay, it passes to to the two Swanson brothers. Swanson brothers are men of absolute honesty. They offer the material to the news of the world. They think it's their sort of thing. News of the world says, yes, sends a man down to interview them, pays them £75 for it and then changes hands and never publishes it. Murdoch didn't think it was interesting. hundred years ago, some British murderer, what's this about? I want modern sex. I presume, I'm guessing. But, you know, they didn't publish it. The Swanson brothers then go, how many years? Something like 20 years. With this information, sitting on it, feeling they have no right to do anything with it because they've taken £75 from the news of the world. They're not news of the world readers. 
And then Jim Swanson, his brother's dead, reads in the Telegraph, which he does read, an account of all the new books which have come out on the Ripper, and he thinks, but I've got my grandfather's um, evidence on this. But I can't use it, because the News of the World has bought it. So he then writes to the News of the World and says, look, I know I sold you this material, but you've never used it. Uh, would you like to use it, or can I offer it to someone else? The News of the World says, oh, good heavens, offer it where you like. And so he sends it to the Telegraph. This is a man of rigid honesty. Does he make any money out of it? £75. He's going to forge a name. He's going to have to do... I mean, I've met Jim Swanson. Stuart Evans has met Jim Swanson. Uh, Keith has met Jim Swanson. He didn't know the background of the Ripper case. He didn't know that the name Kosminski was already existing in uh, another document. He didn't... Not the sort of man to have gone and done a piece of research. He would look for making more money. He would look for really having a big story to sell. He just passed that to the Telegraph to do what they liked with it. He didn't say, I know who Jack the Ripper is. He said, I know who my grandfather said Jack the Ripper was, and I believe what my grandfather said. And that's it. And he left it to anybody to go with that. He never quarreled with anybody who disagreed. He wasn't trying to make money on this. It's an absolutely perfect provenance. Provenance is very, very important. First question I asked about the Maybrick Diary when uh, Robert Smith told me about it, what's the provenance like? And... Robert knows. He said the provenance is as bad as it could possibly be. Thank you. It's very important. Okay. <laughs> um, I have sort of a crossover question in regarding uh, the Swanson marginalia, but it's not really about the marginalia. Because um, uh, Swanson says in the marginalia that uh, uh, the suspect wasn't identified because, you know, he was a fellow Jew and he didn't want to have... Uh, him being hanged on his head. Yes, very mysterious. Um, right, and I was thinking, like, um, if, if the Ripper was in an asylum, whether it's Kosminski or somebody else caged up in an asylum by the police at the time, and they had sufficient evidence for a trial, um, do you think the high-profile nature of the Whitechapel murders would have forced the doctors to uh, declare that person competent to stand trial? No. Because knowing... Okay. Uh that is one. I mean, there are many, many mysteries about the Swanson marginalia. There's a lot that we don't know. Um, that is one of them. The implication of what Anderson says is quite clearly that the man had been declared a maniac, and so he'd be unfit to plead. And there's no question that he couldn't have gone on trial. Swanson was he thinking about a different uh, interrogation? Had he not only got two people confused, whom a lot of policemen might have thought was the same, but was he mis... We don't know. The answer is, I don't know, and I'm not going to venture any comment on it. I'm just going to say, in the present state of knowledge, we have no idea why he said that or what he meant by it. It appears to contradict what Anderson had said in the Blackwoods magazine version, which Swanson obviously didn't know. And... Um, it was, uh, you know, uh, sometime down the line, so there could be memory failure, but we don't know, and I'm not going to get into speculation. I'm only going to pick out and say that, look, before Swanson turned up, I'd said these two men must have been confused, and Swanson gives me two facts that relate to one and two that relate to another. So they were confused. But why they were suspected, well, we've got Anderson's claim that uh, this was because of an identification, and Swanson appears to know about the identification. And complete mystery, the seaside home. Why the seaside home? 
what's the point of having an identification down there? Anderson says he's talking about a man who was in the asylum. They pulled him out to go to the seaside home. I wish we'd had got you know the, the guest book uh, for the men's side of Coney Hatch for that period is missing. Because it would be very, very interesting to see if David Cohen had any visitors from the police. If he didn't, right. then the identification couldn't be of him. And Robert? Do um, you have one more? Oh, yeah. This, this, this really has nothing to do with the, the Ripper case, but I actually wanted to discuss it. Um, uh, Sharon McCrum wrote a mystery fiction book uh, called Missing Susan. She did uh, indeed, yes. Which, yeah, some people might know that uh, the tour guide in, uh, in her book is based on you. And in fact, that is uh, correct. I think there's even a minor character based on Paul Begg, if I remember correctly. That is true as well, Joseph Conn. Right, and there's lots of little clever bits, like uh, the passengers on the coach are named after Ripper victims and stuff like that. That is correct, yes. I, I, I was just wondering, like, did you know of the book like beforehand, and like, how, how did you, yes, how did you feel about it? To you, I told her that I dyed my hair in those days, so she hadn't <laughs> noticed it, but she therefore says it was as unrealistic as a young crow Indian. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I also told her that I liked my uh, shirt jack suit from the West Indies so much that when um, uh, uh, flared trousers went out of fashion, I narrowed the legs myself, which had produced wrinkling on the inside of the left leg, and I showed her that. Well, that ends up as my appearing to have one leg thick and the, uh, thicker than the other. And she also used what was a fact about that pair of trousers. The fly, the plastic fly, had gone. So since I liked the suit very much, I continued to wear it, doing that up with a safety pin, which was invisible but made peeing very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, she wrote that. I knew all about that. She, uh, that arose because they were, I wasn't with them actually, when they were drinking one night uh, at the, um, in the, uh, in one of the hotels. And they asked Sharon, where did she get her ideas for her books from? And she said, well, she used things that she had done or places she'd been as settings. Uh, she could, for instance, use that tour. And they all said, oh, wonderful, what fun. So they said, well, who would you want to kill? And they instantly said Susan, because she's got Susan's manner absolutely. Uh, the driver said to me the first day out at lunchtime, how on earth do you put up with that woman? And I hadn't really noticed Susan was asking a lot of questions <laughs> sitting behind me, and I was answering them. That was my job, and I hadn't noticed, but by the time I was through, God, did I notice. Yes, she's got Susan's manner absolutely. All of us thought it had been very cruel to Susan when it came out, and those who met Susan again said... On reflection, we thought it wasn't very cruel to Susan. Um, and they said, who would be the murderer? Obviously, Martin. Because I had been, uh, they knew I'd been taken on at the last minute to replace Rich, uh, Richard Jones, who was supposed to courier that, but he was taken ill. So he asked me to do it for him. So here was I, an unreal, unexperienced courier, taking this on and deciding where they went. I'd be the obvious person to plan to kill Susan. And then all the other characters are based on the people who were on the bus with the habits that they had. Notably, for example, the lady who used to take all the bread rolls from breakfast in the morning, put them in her handbag, and eat them during the day. <laughs> well, that's a great story. I think everybody's going to go out and buy the book now. Just <laughs> It was fun. <laughs> I've actually read it, and you know, I did not ever connect Rowan Rover with uh. Martin Fido. <laughs> <laughs> 
Grover, I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Martin Fido, we, we thank you for being a guest on this episode. Thank you. I'm sorry Paul Begg wasn't here, so you did get away with asking a lot about Corin and Kosminski, which yes. would have had us arguing. Yes, we did. Uh, we all look forward to the new edition of the A to Z, and, and uh, good luck with that getting published, and we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. And, and yeah, thanks again for being on. Thank you, and goodbye. Um, and um, you've been listening to RipperCast, Episode 11, Police, the Jews, and Jack the Ripper. With our special guest, Martin Fido, and we also had with us Howard Brown, Robert McLaughlin, and Allie Ryder. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and we thank you for listening, and we'll be seeing you next week. <laughs> <laughs>